What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney David Bull is a world-renowned art restorer and the president of Fine Art Conservation and Restoration Incorporated. His tools have touched Picasso's, Monet's, and even a Da Vinci. While his company's client list is protected as passionately as the paintings themselves, over the years, Bull and his wife do share that they've done work for the National Gallery, the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, Sotheby's, and Christie's. This is a fascinating conversation about the art world and how David has become one of the best in the world in his field. If you're like me and love to travel, then listen up. Are you looking to get outside your comfort zone in 2018? Are you tired of the monotony of your nine to five job with no adventure? Do you want to connect with new people on Epic Adventures? If so, then Globekick is what you're looking for. Globekick is redefining travel for the millennial generation. Globekick knows that memorable travel is built on the quality of the experience you have and the people you connect with along the way. That's why their members can choose from curated travel experiences throughout the year with like-minded people. Unlike other travel providers, Globekick members get to know each other through a private social network before choosing when and where they travel together. In 2018, they've teamed up with partners around the world to feature a Sahara Desert camping trip out of Morocco in May, a boating journey through the Sandblast Islands in the Caribbean in August, and a volunteering trip to an elephant sanctuary outside of Cambodia in December. If you want to travel the world with your kind of people and not break the bank, then head to globekick.com and enter WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. That's globekick.com and enter code WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. David, welcome to What Got You There. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. Um, nice of you to call. Yeah, no, I mean, this is a real honor for me. You're you're a true master of their craft in, in the fine art and I'm very interested about different people's processes. So I'd like to start off on how you actually start your day. Do you have any morning routines, things you usually do every single day? Uh, it's pretty regular. Um, normally it's just um, uh, starting off with a painting. I normally check the emails, then start off with a painting, which might have been uh, going on for some weeks or days or maybe looking at examining a new painting. So it's a matter of doing that, starting uh, fairly early in the morning and going through the day. And it's, it's, it's in a way, it's rather routine, although the, the method of examination and writing reports uh, varies from one painting to another. I mean, I'd really like to get in your actual process and in, in when you're working on a painting here in a little bit, but how did you first become involved in art? I know you were born in England uh, in 1934 and then made your way to the States, but how initially did art come into your way? Oh, that is a curious story. Um, <laughs> I have an older brother called John. We went to school together, um, grammar school as it's called in England, and he decided he wanted to go to art school, and which he did. And about one year later, uh, I realized that I wanted to go there too. So I joined him at the art school. Uh, he was three years older than me, but I was just one year behind. He wasn't a very good student. And um, we went through art school together. John left and uh, was offered a very good teaching post, but he just realized that uh, quite rightly that he wouldn't be a very good teacher. So he's looking for something to do. And he literally bumped into the director of the local museum and art gallery in Bristol, uh, who he knew quite well. And he'd, this man said, well, what are you doing, John? And John told him he's looking for something. And the director said, well, you might be the person I want. Would you be interested in becoming a restorer? And John sort of said, yes, well, maybe and that's how it started. John became restorer of the City Art Gallery in Bristol. And he was then, about two years later, appointed to the Tate Gallery in London. By that time, I'd become fascinated by his work. And I took over his position. And I was there for, I think, a couple of years, then went to the National Gallery in London. So that's how it all started. And then there was my brother, John, at the Tate Gallery. And I was at the National Gallery, which was really a rather unusual combination. I mean, when did you first notice you had a true talent for art restoration? Um, 
when I don't know whether it was a true talent, but the first time I actually restored a painting was when I was about 14, and the next door neighbor damaged a painting. And knowing that, knowing that I, knowing that I liked painting and drawing, brought it to me and, and asked me whether I'd repair the hole in the, in the sky. This was a landscape, and I said yes. And so I got bought some tape, stuck it on the back, and then repaint, repainted the sky. So that was my very bad beginning. It sounds like you have quite a different process today than you did at that time, didn't don't you? Only slightly different, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, how do you define an art restore in your terms? How do you define one? Yeah. Is that what you said? Correct. Um, well, it's a person who takes care of the uh, well-being and appearance of a painting. In there are many similarities between the medical profession and the conservation profession. Uh, is a matter of looking after the patient, making it look as well as it can, making sure that it's healthy, because paintings suffer as human beings do from age, from mishandling, and therefore it's looking after the painting, making sure that it's secure, and its appearance is right. And that can be uh, an occupation that lasts on one painting, anything from a day to several years, just depending on the complication of, of the work. What's the longest you've ever worked on a painting? Uh, four and a half years. Which painting was that? It was called The Feast of the Gods by Bellini and Titian, which is in the National Gallery of Art in Washington. And this was a painting that had been painted by Giovanni Bellini in 1514. It had been commissioned by the Duke of Rara, and uh, he finished it, Bellini finished it, and died two years later. And the Duke of Rara, several years later, um, uh, another great Venetian painter, to do some more decoration in the room alongside the Feast of the Gods. And uh, to cut a long story short, the Feast of the Gods was altered. In fact, it was altered twice during its uh, time with the, with the Duke of Frara. And uh, we know that Titian altered it to match with three other paintings that he did for the room. But in the 1950s, I think it was, uh, Johnny Walker, who is the director of the National Gallery of Art in Washington, undertook a survey of the painting and x-rayed it for the first time and realized that there was yet another hand other than Titian and Bellini. This was a very early use of x-ray, which, which like, like medical x-rays, you look through and you see the various layers and the various densities, and you saw that there was another hand at work. And that remained a mystery for a long time. And... Um, uh, nobody really, he made some guesses as to who the other painter might be. But until uh, I started work on the painting, which was about 1986 uh, or 80, 85, 85, I think it was, um, nobody really knew who this third hand was by. And so with a collaboration from the National Gallery in Washington, the scientific department there, we undertook this very deep survey of the painting to try and establish not only to, to uh, make it, uh, just to go back, it hadn't been cleaned since the early 19th century. And therefore the varnish covering the surface was, had gone from clear, to very, very yellow-brown. So this distorted all the colors and the tonal range. And it was a matter of removing this varnish to get back to the original colors. But also the investigation was to try and establish who this third hand was. And this, was, took, this as I said, took four and a half years and was, was a fascinating study and, and was, I think, one of the great pleasures and... and uh, trials in a way of, of my life working on this. It, it, um, it is a great painting and uh, it hangs in the National Gallery of Art in Washington now. 
I've heard you mention multiple times how you view the paintings as a patient. Do you truly view them almost like an actual human being patient you're working on? In a sense. In a sense, yes. It is a matter of looking into the painting. When the, when the painting comes here and I have it on the easel and I examine it, it's a matter of studying it, studying its condition, finding out what's wrong, using various methods to do this, which I won't go into, but really studying very carefully the condition and appearance of the painting and trying to establish what is wrong. Then when you've established that, or indeed what is right, when you've established clearly what has happened or what has, what has happened to the painting in the past, then it is a matter of deciding how to treat it, how to undertake improving the appearance or the condition of the painting. And this can take various different forms of, of operation, as it were. And uh, it just depends on each, each painting has its different requirements, as, as uh, each one has their own problems. And so it's a matter of very careful assessment of what needs to be done. And when you've uh, found this out, then undertaking it. And as I say, this can take um, any amount of time according to the, to the work that's needed. I mean, I'm assuming it changes for every single painting you receive, but when you're first receiving it, I mean, you put it up on the easel and you're examining it, how long is that process usually for you where you're just solely staring into the painting? Oh, uh, it could be anything from uh, an hour to many hours, just depending on the complexity. But first of all, it's just a matter of sitting there and looking at it and uh, having a first first um, understanding of what is going on and looking at its appearance. And then after that, when you've had your first look, then you get deeply into it. Do you like doing research on the painting prior to receiving it? Or do you like to come at it unbiased and not knowing what happened? No, any information is worthwhile. Um, Obviously, but very, very often you don't have any information. You have to gather that by looking at it and assessing what somebody has done. And you have no idea really when it was done or who's, who's done the work on it before. So it's a matter of trying to sort out the puzzle and understand what is going on with the painting. When you're sorting out this puzzle, are you taking notes or is everything done mentally? Mentally, first of all. And then... Uh, usually a report, almost inevitably a report, is, is made for the owner of the painting. They, they need to have this written out so that they understand what is going on. But first of all, it's just about looking, looking, looking. And uh, then when you've sorted out what's going on, it's a matter of writing. The boring part of writing it down, <laughs> which seems to take up an awful lot of time. I mean, all of these details might seem somewhat minor to you and, and things you've been doing for so many years, but I'm so fascinated by, by your process and, and how you've gotten to where you are today and is being a world-renowned art restorer. So I love these nitty little gritty details. How do you set your studio up? Are you pretty precise in, in the layout of it? Yes. Um, yes, indeed. Uh, the, the light source uh, is almost identical from one to the other. You move the light source around so that you look at the painting in different ways, in different lights. But it's pretty well set up uh, in, in the same position. Uh, it can vary according to the size of the painting and so on. But more or less, it's in the same position. The painting comes onto an easel and then you start the examination. While you're doing this, are you listening to any music, anything like that? Are, are there any beverages you like to have? I mean, I, I'm just really interested in what it actually looks like while you're in the studio. Um, I, I don't find music very compatible. Frankly, I love music, but I don't, I don't know why, but I don't like listening to it when I'm working. I prefer the spoken word. And because when you're looking at a painting, you're not 
thinking in, in, you're not thinking verbally, as it were. You're not thinking of what you're going to write about it. You're just looking at it and, and assessing. And so having as a background the spoken word, uh, very, usually it's the NPR news that you're catching up with what is going on, in no way interferes with the work that you're doing. It's just a background. You listen to it, and it, it adds to the concentration of when you're looking at the painting. I hope this question's not confusing, but say you're working on a painting and we were inside your head um, and actually seeing what was going on. How do you narrate the story in your head while you're working on a piece? Do you view- Would you say that again? Would you repeat that? Yeah. So say we were to actually peek inside your head while you're working on a piece. Uh, are, yeah. are you viewing yourself like a great composure and everything's just flowing together? Is time escaping you? I mean, what is the narrative in your head while you're working on a piece? just varies with the painting, basically, as to the complexity uh, and trying to sort out uh, really what has happened to it. And then when you've found out, hopefully, what has happened to it in the past or has happened to it very many times, then it's a matter of assessment of what you should do. And, And this can be a very complicated procedure at times, and it can take a long time. With the complexities, is there a piece you've worked on that you truly feel you just haven't been able to get right? It's just too complex of a problem? Um, no, I'm happy to say. <laughs> no, uh, no, I don't think so. Um, I'm trying to reach down into the memory, but I don't think so. In most cases, uh, it, it is all come clear and some are just much more difficult than others that's all you mentioned the degree of difficulty and you mentioned the four and a half year process with the bellini what do you view as the hardest piece you've worked on um certainly that was the longest i don't know that it was the hardest i think one of the hardest, there have, been, there have been quite a number of them. One of the hardest uh, was working on the painting by Leonardo da Vinci of Ginevra da Benci in the National Gallery of Art in Washington, where there was a damage in the sitter's nose, in the bridge of her nose, where the, the original paint is missing. Now, um, Leonardo's technique was incredibly uh, good. His surface was immaculate. When he applied the paint, he would dab it often with his fingers just to create texture. And you have missing paint, which you have to replace. Then you have to get the texture, the color, uh, the tone exactly right so that the viewer looking at the painting doesn't see that loss there at all. It just looks like original paint. And when you have a surface like that, which, is, which was painted in oil paint on the panel, it's incredibly difficult to match that surface so that the viewer doesn't see it. You can see it under high magnification, but, you, but the average viewer doesn't see it, so they're not, intra, they're not uh, disturbed by seeing this sort of uh, loss in, in, in the in, in the surface. And that's, I remember, one of the most difficult ones. There have been others, but that one in particular, because, well, also because it was such an important painting that um, this is uh, the only Leonardo at that time in this country, and, and uh, it was very famous, and this was quite a, a test uh, to be able to get it right, and I hope it still is right. I haven't seen it for a few years. I'm so excited you brought up the Da Vinci, which you got to work on when you were chairman of painting conservation at the National Gallery. And when you found out that you were going to be able to work on this piece, what's going through your head? Is it excitement? Is it fear? A combination of both? Um, no, it's excitement and interest. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> the, the only time that ever <laughs> there was ever fear was when... Uh, there was a visit from the wife of the president of Italy 
who came, she was on some visit to to Washington, and she came to see the painting. And it was a relatively small painting, 14 inches by 18 inches, something like that. Relatively small on, on a piece of wood. And she came in to look at it. And uh, this painting was painted on the reverse as well, it was, uh, which was fascinating. Um, and I was talking to her about it and showing her the portrait and then mentioned the painting on the back. And she said she'd like to see it. And as I went to pick up the painting to turn it around, I suddenly felt incredibly nervous. And as though I was, I was afraid I was going to drop it. It's the only time it's ever happened to me. I've never dropped a painting like this before. But I remember this moment of nervousness and uh, turning around, being so relieved when I got it back on the easel again. But you cannot, if you get nervous when you're working on a painting, you should really control this. You can't. You can't let let nerves get in the way. You've got to be extremely careful, methodical, think things through, and don't do anything until you're quite sure that you're doing the right thing. When you think of confidence, how does it play in, into your overall process? I'm sorry, would you say it again? The word confidence. How does confidence play in your overall process? Uh, knowing what, you should know uh, knowing your own abilities your capabilities and understanding really what you should do and and thinking of this in terms of the overall appearance of the painting it's, it's, a, it's a calculation of, of all these things that go into doing actually physically doing something on a painting you you've got to find out and understand after a lot of looking and thinking what needs to be done and then when you do it you've got to be confident that you're doing the right thing i hear a lot of great artists talk about they never feel their paintings done once you've worked on a piece do you usually feel like you've completed it yes Yes, I think so. There might be some occasions when maybe because of the time constraint, you wish you could have had longer. But normally, no, you take it to completion as far as you want it to go, as far as you feel it should go. And the painting tells you that. It's a matter of uh, realizing what should be done to it. And this, as I say, can take an hour. No, not an hour, a day or weeks or months. But you take it to what you think should be, bring the painting to the best condition uh, and the best appearance. I listen to you talk and I feel a great deal of confidence behind your work and your skill set. And I'm wondering at what point in your career did you truly feel like what you were doing on the canvas or with the painting was truly great and masterful work? Oh, I don't think I can answer that one. Um, I can't remember a particular, I remember in the early days, uh, back in the 15th century when I started doing this, how uh, unsure and nervous uh, I was handling paintings, but you know, as you as you get older, as you get more experienced, then you get you build your confidence, uh, as you build your knowledge as well, and and your skills. I can't remember going back anything in particular. No, I'm sure there were many, I'm sure there were many occasions. <laughs> well, no, it was even great hearing that you mentioned in, in your early days how nervous you were. Uh, I, I almost thought for a second that throughout your entire career, you almost just had this self-confidence and belief in yourself. So it, it's cool to hear about that in the early days. Uh, and and with your work, there's a great deal of secrecy. Why is that something you've taken such great pride in? Um, if you're working in a museum, there's no secrecy. Um, because... Uh, the other members of the staff can come and see what you're doing and visitors can come and see what you're doing. There's no secrecy at all. It is, it is open. 
Um, and often this work is published, or it's certainly photographed uh, really comprehensively. If you're working privately, as we do now, that is another matter. Somebody bringing you a painting doesn't want that painting to be seen by other people. Uh, they like things to be private. If, if it's owned by a dealer or a sale room or a sale room is selling it, then they don't want this to be shown to other people. Therefore, there is tremendous privacy. If somebody comes to our studio uh, to look at something, all the other paintings are turned face to the wall and, and they're not visible to, to somebody else. So there is that privacy that is very important. So how has this craft changed over the years? You mentioned it seems like you used to work more with museums and now it's more private. What about the actual craft of it all and, and the tools you've used and technologies and how they've been incorporated? Has it changed much over your time? Yes. Yes, certainly. Um, there have been developments in the materials that one uses. There have been tremendous developments uh, advances in the analysis and examination of a painting, the, the scientific uh, analysis of pigments, of materials, the ability to uh, tell the age of a piece of wood. There's so many different um, elements of a painting which have uh, had uh, researchers produced much, much better ways of looking into it. Um, going back to the Feast of the Gods, which reminds me that that was first x-rayed, very early days of x-rayed, I think somewhere in the 1950s. And now x-ray is sort of is, uh, so commonplace. Uh, but in the, in the 1950s, that was very, very unusual thing that happened. So there have been enormous advances in able to, uh, to analyze pigments. Um, different pigments were invented or produced at different times. And to analyze uh, the pigments that are contained in the painting can often tell you uh, the, not exactly the date of the painting, but it can tell you, for example, if you found titanium white in a pigment, you know that it must have been painted after about the early, uh, about 1910, something like that, after 1910, which was when titanium was invented. Same with other paintings, uh, sorry, other pigments, which were developed and invented uh, in, in the 19th century. If you have a 16th century painting with, uh, let's say, Prussian blue in it, you know that it's wrong, that it can't, cannot be of that date. So there have been enormous advances in understanding the materials uh, in in paintings, and this has been tremendously useful, of course, in in establishing fakes and also understanding the conditions of the painting. You mentioned fakes, and I, I've heard that talk a lot. How much of the art world is riddled with forgeries and fakes? Um, too much. <laughs> I think too much. Um, there have been so many cases of this, and there, again, with the ability to undertake scientific research, more and more and more are being discovered. Again, fifty years ago, when there, when it wasn't so easy to analyze the materials of a painting, it was much easier to fake. Uh, because you couldn't you couldn't determine the the date of a pigment or or something like this. Now with uh, it is so much easier, and particularly in contemporary art, there there are quite a number of fakes around. Um, how many I don't know, but the, and the fake has been going on for hundreds of years, so it's is nothing new. Um, but it's it's a fascinating area. And um, there have been some extremely brilliant people who made made fakes that I've come across over over the years. Um, it's a fascinating area. Yeah, uh, I'm actually quite fascinated in that. Is there any forgers alive today that you've come across um, that you just think are absolutely incredible? Um, I've only read about them. Uh, 
I have come across the work done by a man who died some years ago, a Belgian restorer and forger, and his work was astonishingly good. But I believe, and I read in the in newspapers about recent forgeries, which apparently are incredibly good, but I haven't seen them. The results of the examinations haven't been published, so I really can't talk about them. What I read is that these were astonishingly good. It's a very, it is a very interesting area, mm-hmm. very, very interesting. One or two forgers have actually written books about their work, and and there was the famous story about Van Meegeren, who is the man who forged Vermeers. I don't know whether you know this, um, but he was a painter of a rather disillusioned painter um, who turned to forgery in his sort of revenge against the art world. This was back in in the 1930s, somewhere around there. And he was so disillusioned because his paintings weren't achieving the success uh, that he turned to forgery. And he very, very cleverly looked into the career of Vermeer, one of the most revered of all painters, and realized there was a period uh, in his work there weren't many, many paintings. So he decided to make forgeries. And at the time, they they were absolutely convincing. He was only caught because he, this was during World War II, and I think it was uh, Goering bought one of his paintings, and therefore Van Meegeren was accused of collaboration with the Germans. And there was a great court trial, and uh, this was fascinating. Um, And uh, now, if you see one of the Van Meegeren forgeries, it is very, very obvious that they are quite wrong, even just looking at them. But at the time, they fooled a lot of people. And uh, also because there was, there was um, people were looking for this missing period of Vermeer's. So forgeries are, are fascinating, absolutely intriguing. I'm so fascinated that you're so intrigued by the forgery aspects. Um, are you also interested at all in art theft or does that just really get you upset? Um, I follow it on the case of the stolen paintings in the Gardner Museum of Boston is, is very, very sad. And it's tragic that they haven't been discovered. This was uh, an appalling theft. And there's a great fear that they might have been destroyed. One doesn't know. Um, it's intriguing and it's very sad. Uh, there have been, obviously, over the years, many thefts taken place. I've never, thank goodness, been involved in looking at any of these paintings. There's just been a matter of things that I read in the newspaper or books. Is there an artist or a painting you've always dreamed of getting the opportunity to work on? Don't think so. I've been extremely fortunate in working on a number of on works by a number of very good painters. And I can't think of one offhand. Uh, I would like, yes, okay. Uh, Velasquez, for me, is the greatest of all painters. And I would love to work on a full-length Velasquez portrait. I've worked on smaller ones, but a full-length Velasquez portrait would be a dream of mine. What makes him the greatest of all time? Oh, you don't have long enough <laughs> to to know that. Give us, the, give the, us the cliff notes. I would, I mean, I would love hearing your take on it and why you think he's the best. I think this would need, uh, as I say, a long time to discuss. And in fact, it would be best discussed in front of a painting rather than uh, on the telephone. Um, it is just that he has far, far greater qualities than most other painters. Oh, I, this is severe competition because you've got people like Raphael, you've got Van Eyck, you've got so many other great painters. But for me, Velasquez stands above all others. I remember many years ago, 
going to the Prado in Madrid to study the paintings by Titian. I was working on the Feast of the Gods at the time. And uh, to get to the Titians, one has to walk through uh, a room filled with the and paintings. And I would walk through, go and spend half an hour looking carefully at tradition, and then be pulled back into the room with the Vlasses because I thought they were so fabulous. And this happened several times. Uh, he, he's, he's the best of all. If there was any painting in all of the world that you could have on your wall that you would get to look at every day, what would it be? Oh, that's easy. Uh, that would be The Lady with the Ermine by Leonardo da Vinci, uh, which is the one painting that I would have on my wall. Why was that so easy for you to say that? Um, because I think it's sublimely beautiful. Uh, it is a masterpiece of technique. It's got an, incre- um, an intriguing story behind it. And it's a painting that I uh, was very much involved with. I didn't, I didn't clean and restore it, but I was very involved in examining it and um, writing about it and, and talking about it. And for me, it's um, magically beautiful and could hang very well on my walls. It's not that, that big, but it would look very nice on the wall, just, just opposite. I mean, there's been many who have argued that you could be the greatest art restorer in the world. If, oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. No. Yeah. The, there, there have no, been people no. who have argued that. And, and I'm wondering what specific skill sets you possess that I know, I know <laughs> no. you're very humble, but what do you think that you possess that has allowed you to do a great job over your career? Uh, hard work, I think. Hard work and caring. But um, I, I've I've known talking about great restorer. There's one man who's unknown now, uh, who I think is one of the greatest restorers ever. He's uh, he never published, he never lectured. A man called Percy Williams, who worked at the Tate Gallery in London. Very quiet, unassuming man, who dedicated his life to Turner. And Turner is one of the most difficult painters to work on. Uh, he was complicated in his materials. He often repainted his own paintings, changed things. He would varnish something and then paint on top of it. And very complicated, very difficult, um, hair-raising things to work on. And Percy dedicated his life to these paintings. And uh, I mean, he was the finest of all, without any doubt, the finest that I've ever known uh, or work of, that, that I've come across. It was superb. But nobody, know, no, nobody knows about him. <laughs> I mean, those who knew him, uh, that, but other than that, no, he never published, but he was the best, best of all. Well, it's sad for me to hear you talk about him and, and knowing that I would love reading books and, and checking out his work, but it seems like there there's not going to be much available for me to go do research on him, unfortunately. Are, Nothing. Are, <laughs> Nothing. Are, are there any artists today that you just have tremendous respect for? Any painters that you think are just maybe once in a generation out there? Who are living or... Um... Yep, living right now. Um... That's a hard one. My thought immediately goes to somebody who tragically died recently. That was um, Freud, Lucy and Freud. Um, I think he was a, a great, great painter, very tough, um, but a great painter. Of living painters, that is hard. That is harder. I would have to think about that one. It, it, nobody immediately comes to mind. Um, so I, I would I would cling to Lucian Freud um, as being a, a, a great, um, almost contemporary painter. Do you collect a great deal of paintings? Yes. No, not a great. <laughs> no, not a great deal. Um, 
actually there's quite a few as I look around, but um, but yes, uh, collect things that I like and I can afford, which is very modest. Uh, and I've collected over the years um, drawings, paintings, and uh, also uh, of there was a fellow student of mine who we became great friends and remain great friends. Um, and I collected much of it, a lot of his work and that's hanging now in the studio on the walls. And they give me enormous pleasure every day to see them. Do you mind sharing so, who that student was? I'm sorry, what did you say? Do you mind sharing who that student of yours is? Um, he wasn't my student. We were fellow students. Oh, okay. We were we we were at art school together. He's a man called David Ferguson, who tragically died last year. He's an English painter. Well, we were both English, and he had an enormous influence on my on my life because we were students together. We became great friends. Used to party together and uh, all sorts of things. We went to Paris together for the first time. And we, I remember sitting on, on, on the pavement side by side doing drawings. And as I spent so much time with him, I realized he was much better than I was. And yet he was struggling. And that made me understand that I could never be a good painter. I, I was never going to be as good as he was. And thank goodness, I then turned away from wanting to be an artist, but went on collecting his work and keeping in touch with him uh, all the way through his life. And it gives me enormous pleasure to live with his drawings and paintings. He's not, he's not very well known. He, he's, he was collected uh, by a number of uh, collectors, in, mostly in England, I think, I think in other parts of the world, but uh, I, I think he only had, to my knowledge, one exhibition in his life. And that was a small one uh, in the west of England somewhere. I can't remember the name of the, the town. But other than that, um, actually, no, uh, my wife and I had a small exhibition of his work here in the studio uh, about a year or so ago, which, which was... Uh, and we publish a small catalog. But no, other than that, he was very little known, but highly respected. He was a, he remained a teacher all his life, and the influence that he had on his on his students was was just remarkable. And they give me as much pleasure as, as almost anything else that we have on the walls. Besides one of David's paintings, say there was a fire in your, your home or studio and you can only grab one piece, what are you going to grab? Oh, um, that's very tough. I, I think, I hope I don't have to do this. But, um, <laughs> Let's hope not. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly hope not. I, I think it would be a small landscape by Lord Leighton, an English painter, and... Uh, it, it's very, very tiny of a, of a painting in the Middle East. And in the early 60s, I was walking down Old Bond Street in London and saw a sign saying exhibition upstairs. And I, it was a very famous art gallery called Agnews, the oldest art gallery, I think, in, in the world at that time. And I went upstairs and there was this little landscape by Lord Leighton. And it was 300 pounds. I think this was 1964 or something like 1962. My grandmother just, lie, just died and left me 300 pounds and I bought it. And which I shouldn't, shouldn't have done um, <laughs> because I had rent to pay and, and so on. But I just, I just love this painting and I'm looking at it now. And uh, it gives me uh, such pleasure to see it. And I think that would be the one. Um, there are several that I would try and grab several of them. But I think if I just had to have one, that would be the one. I mean, that's just such a great story you told there. <laughs> 
I don't don't know that my grandmother would have approved. (laughs) I don't don't think she would have, but I I think certainly my grandfather wouldn't have done. (laughs) (laughs) So, if you could sit down for an evening, a a great dinner with one person, either dead or alive, who would it be? What a question! That is very tough. In in a way, I think it probably would be. Velasquez, although the problem is they don't speak Spanish, so it's a very, diff- very difficult dinner. We'll, we'll have an interpreter for you. Oh, well, that's okay. If you can, if you can supply that, I'll, I'll, I'll take that. <laughs> oh, I'm so fascinated. Yes, I think, I, I think so. I think probably Velasquez, maybe Giovanni Bellini, who, who has a big place in my heart. When you, when you mentioned the these artists and, and you're picturing your time with them and, and, and the dinner and the evening. And are there certain questions that come front of mind for you? Um, no, it would be just a matter of listening to them talk and prodding them with questions. Uh, it would depend. I have no idea what I would ask them. Uh, it would grow out of the conversation It'd probably be asking a lot about the food we were eating as well, but um, no, I don't. I wouldn't have any particular questions. Uh, just the pleasure of their company and and, and uh, hearing them talk and think. That would be that would be phenomenal. Someone who's prodded you with tons of questions over the years, and the most recent podcast guest we had is New York Times best-selling author Daniel Silva, and his character Gabriel Alon, who's a world-renowned art restorer. Uh, he's really asked you a lot of questions over the year uh, about art restoration. Uh, yes. What is that like when you when you kind of see that character come to life, who in some ways is is a lot uh, themed after you? Um, well, of course. <laughs> He's a very, Gabriel Alon is a very different person from me. Um, so uh, when I read about him and his exports, exploits, um, they're so different from anything that I could do. I wouldn't know which direction to point a gun or, ch- or chase somebody. Um, not, that's not for me. Um, but the, it was, it's been a great pleasure uh, knowing Daniel Silver, and over the years, it, it's been a, a wonderful friendship. And there's a lovely story about how this began. Um, that again, many years ago, living in Washington, uh, somebody from the NBC Today program came to interview me, um, and the person who came was somebody called Jamie Gangell, and in between takes. Um, we were talking and my wife was talking to her and discovered they lived near, she lived nearby and uh, we invited her to come and have dinner one evening with her husband. I didn't know who he was. And, and Daniel Silver came along and we were having dinner with a group of people and I uh, had just met him that evening and he, I watched him being very quiet, uh, during dinner, he did talk, but he listened a lot. And he said, as he was walking home with his wife, I've just got my next character. <laughs> and that's how the whole thing started. And, and we got together frequently and he would come to the National Gallery to look at things and we would talk and he would ask questions and emails and so on. And, and that's how the friendship developed. And uh, even when I moved to New York, and would go back to Washington uh, quite frequently. I would always go and have dinner with him, which he cooked, and talk about things. And he would pester me with questions. So it's been it's been a lovely it's been a lovely friendship. I sadly haven't seen him for a little while. He's become uh, very busy, and and um, but his latest book, as you know, has just come out, which I haven't read yet, but I've got it sitting on the table. Uh, just another fascinating story that you have, and, and I have to wonder: are, are you working at all on your own book to tell some of, some of the stories throughout your life? Um, yes, yes, but, I am so yeah. I'm so happy you said yes because I cannot wait to read that uh, once that once that does come out. Any idea when that might be released? Um, I would have thought in about fifty years' time. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> with a bit of luck. Yeah, with a bit of luck, exactly. Oh, David. And a lot of hard and a lot of hard work. <laughs> and trying to and trying to remember things. That's the other problem. <laughs> Well, David, this this conversation has been fascinating and I'm truly humbled I got to speak with you today. Well, David, I can't thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. Okay, Sean, thank you very much for, for this time and I look forward to hearing what went on and uh, we'll be in touch. Great, thank you. If you're like me and love to travel, then listen up. Are you looking to get outside your comfort zone in 2018? Are you tired of the monotony of your nine to five job with no adventure? Do you want to connect with new people on Epic Adventures? If so, then Globekick is what you're looking for. Globekick is redefining travel for the millennial generation. Globekick knows that memorable travel is built on the quality of the experience you have and the people you connect with along the way. That's why their members can choose from curated travel experiences throughout the year with like-minded people. Unlike other travel providers, Globekick members get to know each other through a private social network before choosing when and where they travel together. In 2018, they've teamed up with partners around the world to feature a Sahara Desert camping trip out of Morocco in May, a boating journey through the Sandblast Islands in the Caribbean in August, and a volunteering trip to an elephant sanctuary outside of Cambodia in December. If you want to travel the world with your kind of people and not break the bank, then head to globekick.com and enter WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. That's globekick.com and enter code WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.